Hello, and welcome to the intersection of Crystal R. Emery. Crystal is a member of the Producers Guild of America, an American Association for the Advancement of Science, if then ambassador, and a member of New York Women in Film and Television. Crystal is CEO and founder of You Are You the Right to Be Inc., and she is a badass. Today's episode is Hanging Out with Snakes featuring Samantha Wins. Here is Crystal Renee Emery. Hello, and welcome to the intersection of Crystal R. Emery. You know, that intersection has a lot of traffic going on, and it is not just in Connecticut. So in October, I made my way to Texas to be part of the AAAS If Then Ambassadorship. Acronyms, I am so terrible with them. So I will tell you what that means. American Association for the Advancement of Science. I wasn't sure what to expect. I had interfaced with Lida Hill Philanthropies the year before. And so I knew whatever was going on would be powerful and exciting, but I really didn't know what to expect. As both participant and observer, and you know, I'm a filmmaker, so I was participant and observer. I started calling the summit the Women Gather, for that's what it seemed like. On October 20th through the 23rd, when women of all colors, shapes, sizes disembarked from trains, planes, automobiles, and vans, you know I'm getting tired, to complete their journey to Dallas, Texas for the AAAS If Then Summit. Every one of us had a sense of anticipation and hope. The first day as I went into the Shishi Fufu W Hotel where people were gathering, I realized I knew no one present except for Shirley Malcolm. Oh dear, I thought to myself, how am I supposed to get acquainted with a room full of virtual strangers? Of course, as the room continued to fill with more and more people, being in a wheelchair made it all the more difficult for me to navigate until I finally felt so overwhelmed. And you know, it's really important that you understand this. You know, when you're in a room and everybody's standing up and they could dodge people. You know, you can't dodge people in a full room in a wheelchair. So you spend a lot of time, excuse me, excuse me, could you move, could you move? Finally, I got so damn overwhelmed, I just left the room. After I left the room, however, I asked Liz and Jemina, is there someone in that room that I should meet? They said, all of them. They said, if you want to meet some folks, we'll just bring them out here in the foyer where you are. And they did. And you know what? I love those two women for doing that. One of the first women that I met was a tall redhead named Samantha Wynn. And her energy was just amazing. From that point on, things started to percolate. And I found myself engaged in little gems of conversations with some remarkable ladies. I found myself saying like, oh my God, what do you do? Or I need to talk to you somewhere else outside of here. 
Suddenly I realized that I had found my voice. I remembered who I was and why the hell I had traveled for two days and over 30 plus hours in a van to come to Dallas in the first damn place. So back to the amazing, tall, brilliant Samantha Wentz. It was love at first sight. And later, after she heard my first draft of my podcast, Crotch Gazing, she came down and sat next to me and started talking to me eye to eye. She got it. She understood me. Samantha is so fantastic. And listeners, I wanted you to meet her too. So take a moment to listen to this podcast, hanging out with snakes and loving it. Don't worry, you'll figure out as we go through it, uh, exactly what that title means. Hi, my name is Samantha Wins, and I am a conservation biologist, a science communicator, and a community builder. Samantha, share with me your experiences with AAAS, If Then, and Lida Hill Philanthropies. What were your feelings or experiences on the trip to Texas? So a a good friend of mine um, who is a neuroscientist, a researcher at SDSU here in San Diego, uh, sent me a message and she said, hey, hey, I have this, I have this thing that you should apply for. Um, It is definitely not right for me, but this is perfect for you. It was this if-then ambassadorship with AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And um, as I started looking into that, I said, I don't think I'm going to get this. This seems extremely competitive. Um, But you know what? Uh, One thing's for sure, I won't get it if I don't try. And she's right. I think this is exactly my mission, uh, what I'm looking to do in life. Um, So I'm going to apply for it. And that mission is, um, it's called the If Then Initiative because it stands for if we empower a woman in STEM, then she can change the world. Um, And the whole goal of this ambassadorship is to empower women in STEM to go out and um, do the good work they're doing, but also to inspire others uh, to care about STEM. Um, And that is... STEM is one of the things I'm most passionate about in life. And so I applied. It was a rigorous application process. And to my surprise and absolute delight, I I got it. Uh, Me, there's 125 of us um, total, women across the United States, uh, from all different places, like even Puerto Rico, and in all different fields. And um, the, really the kickoff for this ambassadorship was a summit in Dallas, Texas, where it was like a boot camp, like a STEM education boot camp, right, where we learned how to be um, good, better science communicators, where we learned how to use social media to communicate and connect with people, um, where they took, they created a press kit for us. Um, they took uh, photographs and you know had a video interview and most importantly of all gave us a platform to really connect with these other ambassadors these extraordinary women 
as I looked around the room and I started meeting more and more of them, um, it was actually really hard not to have imposter syndrome uh, because these women are just so diverse, are doing such incredible work in their daily lives. But I think what was funny is that the more I talked to, to all the different women that I met, and I probably met at least half of them, um, every single one of us felt the same way. And then I recognized, oh, maybe if we're all feeling that way, what that is actually telling us that we all actually belong here. And so that feeling of camaraderie, and, and Crystal, I think you named it best when you called it a sisterhood. That is exactly what I felt walking away. Every person I spoke with was like, asked what I did and then how they could support it. Um, I just think there's going to be so many incredible collaborative projects that come from this. And I feel really excited about the future and what these connections may bring. It was an extraordinary experience. Help us understand the value of national parks. I don't think that we really appreciate them. Walk us through the park. Let us see it through your eyes. I have basically, in a, in a sense, uh, dedicated my entire life to places like our national parks. Um, I think they're incredibly valued because they're all about connection, right? Um, connection to our incredible resources that surround us, connection to the land. I think something that we're really suffering from in modern society is feeling disconnected from one another. Um, you know, we spend all this time on devices where we, not, we don't see people face to face. We spend all this time indoors in a city. We're not outside connected to everything else that lives on this planet like we have been for eons, right? As we evolved, we were connected to nature. So our national parks give us a space to feel that connection again, to feel that sense of awe and wonder. Where I work at Cabrillo National Monument, and we happen to have um, the world's fastest animal there, if you said cheetah, you would be wrong. That is not the world's fastest animal. It's the world's fastest land animal. Um, but I'm speaking about the peregrine falcon. It is a raptor that can dive over 240 miles an hour. It's basically the speed of a jet plane. And uh, this bird, it has to dive that quickly because it hunts other birds. It hunts them midair. It, it chases down ducks who can go 50 miles an hour, gets above them, and dive down upon them. Um, it's really a sight to behold, and I actually got to witness it uh, the other day when I was just standing there at Cabrillo looking out at the beautiful vista and soaking in um, the peace, the, the sounds of the ocean, the peace of nature. Um, I was standing there with my friend, and uh, suddenly he's facing me, and suddenly he points behind me, and he goes, Peregrine Falcon! And I turn around, and I'm telling you, like a shot, I have never seen move anything so quickly in my life. Here comes this dove just wending its way around uh, a bunch of our infrastructure there, and I'm like, what is going on? And this peregrine falcon is chasing it. I suddenly see this peregrine falcon. He swoops down upon this dove. The dove somehow escapes. There's feathers everywhere. The dove somehow escapes, and the peregrine falcon flies straight up and then swoops down again. Meanwhile, I mean, this is like wild kingdom right in front of our eyes. <laughs> 
we're just we're shouting. We're jumping up and down and shouting, and people are running from all over thinking there's something wrong. And we're just basically nerding out um, on this incredible scene of nature in front of us. Um, and eventually the Peregrine Falcon swoops down on this dove and then takes them down and they disappear into the brush. And after that experience, I just, my heart was pounding. And I just, I don't think people get to feel connected to other living things in that way. And they don't get to see the miracle of nature every day in their life. And that's one of the things that national parks have to offer them. Exactly what do you do at the National Park? Well, I wear many hats at Cabrillo National Monument. I get to assist and sometimes lead um, what we call inventory and monitoring projects at the park. And what that means is, you know, if, if we are going to preserve and protect our, those beautiful natural resources, all of those plants and animals, right, that, that live at Cabrillo, um, we have to know about them. We have to know what's there. We have to know how things might be changing. Um, and we have to study uh, our ecosystems. And one of my favorite things that I do at the park is what we call herpetofauna monitoring. Um, it's a very fancy word for monitoring our reptile and amphibian species at the park. And so this past summer, I was actually leading the monitoring program there. Um, and I gather a few qualified folks and we go out early in the morning and we look to see what we've captured. Around the park we have something called pitfall arrays. They are arrays of traps that are made to trap small animals. And these, of course, are humane traps. It does not injure them at all in any way. So what we do is for one week of the month we open up these traps and we come back every morning and we see who we've caught in them. Now we catch a variety of things. These traps are basically just um, buckets that are buried in the ground up to the lip um, and uh, that we would kind of prop the lid up. And then with guide fencing, so a little fencing that kind of guides animals directly to the bucket as they're running along. Um, and we also have what we call snake traps, which are uh, just rolled chicken wire um, and that we put along these little guide fences that have a mechanism that it's easy for snakes to get inside, but not easy for them to escape. They get trapped in them. So because these are just buckets in the ground and these little chicken wire, we do catch a lot of different things. So we, catch a, we catch a lot of small mammals, a lot of shrews and mice and, and rats, um, sometimes little even baby newborn bunnies, which is adorable. And I tend to take lots of photos of them when we do, uh, because baby bunnies. Uh, and uh, we get a lot of cool arthropods like uh, tarantulas and millipedes and scorpions, lots of scorpions. Um, but what we're really, the, the thing that we're trying to catch are our lizard species and our snake species. So um, it's my job as the person who monitors them. Once we catch something, we have to process the animal. Uh, we take some data on that animal, we record that data, and then we can look at that data from year after year to see how populations might be changing over time. Um, such as if there's a population decrease or increase, um, or if for some reason their, their you know, um, median mass is changing or something of that, that sort. Um, so this is arguably one of the best parts of my job because I get to handle these animals. And I know a lot of you right now are like, you're crazy. You want to pick up a lizard? 
you want to wrangle a snake? And yes, I do, actually, <laughs> because the more I learned in school about these animals as a biologist, the more I realized how extraordinary they are. Snakes, people, I think, are so afraid of snakes, but honestly, I think it's just maybe not a lot of exposure to them or no positive experiences with them. But, um, you know, most snakes are non-venomous and not at all harmful to us and, in fact, want to have nothing to do with us. And so one of the facts that I learned is that um, snakes can sometimes go an entire year on one meal. They don't want to. That's starvation mode for them. They're in dire straits. But can you imagine? Can you imagine not having to eat three, four, or like me, five or six times a day? I mean, it's really extraordinary. These animals are incredible. Um, and so being able to be up close and personal and, and to be able to admire them and to know that by taking this data and by monitoring them the way that I am, that I'm, I'm actively um, finding ways to preserve and protect them um, is just really fun and really meaningful to me. When people think about national parks, they often think about like an old white man like Theodore Roosevelt or John Muir, are there any women in the field of nature and education that we should know about? I think that idea that national parks are only for a certain demographic um, is something that the National Park Service has been trying to shed. Um, and it's something that I work on a daily basis. Um, these are our public lands, and they are for everyone, and I want people to recognize that. And I think uh, the National Park Service has really tried to create more diversity, you know, whether they've been super successful or not at that. I don't know. I haven't looked at the data, um, but I will know from my own experience uh, working with the National Park Service, I work with a lot of women. Um, and I work with some people of color, um, though I, I do think we could do a better job of including uh, people of color as well in our demographics. We have a lot of people from other countries right. visiting, and many of them are from East Asian countries like mm -hmm. China. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of people from India as well. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to local people of color, for instance, mm -hmm. we do not get a lot of them visiting. We get some, we don't get a lot. You are getting me excited about the work that you do and national parks, but how do we connect people who spend most of their day just trying to survive? Like, how do we get them to feel part of and understand and value the national park system? That's something that the National Park Service has, has been really examining and really kind of, it's, I think at times, really struggling with. Um, I think part of it is creating accessibility, right? People will not um, care about what they can't access, right? Um, they can't conserve what they don't know about. Um, and so that's one of my goals as an outreach coordinator is to actually bring the parks to the people, so to go out into the community and meet them where they're at and introduce them to some of the important aspects of our national parks, um, part of their history, for instance, 
important aspects as far as like beautiful places that they can explore and discover and learn. Um, so trying to create that access for them. Um, I think it's important to, to point out, to maybe draw some conclusions too of why um, open spaces and nature is important in general. Talking about how we actually get a lot of services, so we call that ecosystem services in scientific circles. Um, so having a healthy ecosystem um, actually gives us clean water, right? clean air, um, gives us resources to use, uh, gives us better food production, these sorts of things. And so trying to draw a conclusion between you know, perhaps their community, maybe they have a community garden, right? Um, talking about their community garden and using learning ways to farm that produce more, um, produce healthier food, and then kind of equating that back to wild ecosystems as well, um, I think is, a, is maybe a way to draw a connection there. What is the unique perspective as a woman you bring to the subject of environmentalism and ecology? I think I can bring something to environmental science and biology and ecology I hope that just by existing there, by doing the work, by being enthusiastic and passionate about the work that I do and sharing that with others, um, by sharing my imagery of doing the hard work, that hard field work, that sweaty, dirty work, um, shows people that um, they belong there too, right? Our planet, our beautiful, beautiful planet, is for everybody. Everybody has the right to be here. Everybody has the right to pursue things that they are passionate about. Everybody has the right to feel included and that they belong. What are your goals to illuminate and inspire a passion for STEM in young women? So I really, really want to solve some of the world's biggest problems, right? I, I know that sounds <laughs> like an unattainable, lofty goal. Um, but I came to conservation biology actually late in the game. Uh, I had another career before I became a scientist, um, which I enjoyed very much. It was very rewarding. It was a lot of fun. Um, but as I started to look around me, and uh, more and more information started coming out about climate change, about um, this amazing amount of biodiversity, uh, amazing amount of species that we're losing every day on this planet because of human activity. I just realized that I really needed to put my efforts into solving that. And so I went back to school to become a conservation biologist. I wasn't sure if I would be a conservation geneticist. I wasn't sure if I would be you know, a researcher in academia. Uh, I wasn't sure if I would be an educator. I wasn't, you know, there's many, many different avenues you could take. You can go into environmental policy, et cetera. And so um, I think what I've recognized is out of all of the things that I do, they're all meeting that goal in some way because of the agency that I work with. Um, but 
I think the most effective and most powerful um, job that I do for meeting that goal, for solving these big issues, is as an educator, as, as a science communicator. And what I mean by that is inspiring other people to care about these topics, to connect with the environment, to connect with these plants and animals, um, inspiring them to pursue STEM careers, inspiring them to make some changes in their lives, become environmental stewards. I see this ripple effect. You know, I throw this tiny pebble just in, in the work that I do, and I see it spreading outward as they speak to their families about it, as they go on to college to pursue these careers. And um, so it's really my goal to inspire as many people as I can. But that being said, we aren't going to solve climate change. We aren't going to stop extinctions without every voice at the table. We need everyone. We need women. We need people of color. We need everyone in every demographic to, to they don't all have to be scientists, of course. They don't all have to be climatologists or biologists, right? Um, but we need everyone to care and to be aware of it and to put some of their efforts into it as well. So I recognize that there is a major lack. I mean, even though we're seeing more women in STEM fields, for instance, it's still um, the percentages are not where they should be. I think it's something like there's 50% uh, of college-educated people are women, right about, um, but only 30% of the people in STEM fields are women, right? Who are some of the female voices that we should be looking for now in the environmental arena? I feel like in the environmental arena, we're hearing more and more and more female voices. You, have, of course, have your incredible female pioneers, like Jane Goodall, for instance. Um, but I think you also have people like Alexandria Acorsia Ortiz. Um, I'm sorry, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, who is speaking up um, very vocally, uh, very stridently against climate change, right? Um, and, and, and pushing that agenda of like, hey, we really need to take note of this. Um, I do, from my own personal experience, I know of many movers and shakers um, in the field who are just getting the work done behind the scenes. Um, one of them is my mentor and my friend. Her name is Alex Warnicke, and um, she works for the Climate Science Alliance. And not only does she look at climate change data and analyze data, but she, just, she translates that often very difficult to understand and complex data for the general public, and I think does a really, really good job um, giving that information to people who don't have a science background is extremely important. Um, if we're going to stop climate change, we need everyone at the table and we need everyone on board, right? So not just scientists in, within that field. Her and, and the uh, director, of course, of the Climate Science Alliance, a Amber Paris, um, have created this whole incredible network of people from all these different fields um, to come together and, and try to solve the problem in their, in their own small way and maybe some big ways in their own community. There's actually a lot of really extraordinarily powerful women who are just 
quietly doing the work and changes for the better of the planet. And I'm proud to be, you know, in that group of women. You know, I'm proud to work with the National Park Service um, for the mission of, of preserving and protecting these beautiful resources. As a AAAS, if then, ambassador, what are some of your goals? It's my goal to really encourage girls and people of color um, to get passionate about STEM and to get passionate about environmental stewardship. That's what really drives me. Um, and so I do that with a lot of projects at the park. I think some, the most powerful project that I'm involved in is the STEM Summer Camp for Girls. It's free. Um, anyone can participate. It's just a first-come, first-served basis. And um, these girls ages 9 through 16, I think those critical years when girls often lose interest in STEM because, you know, maybe they're told they're not good at math or that STEM is not for them. And um, by the end of that two-week free summer camp, you just see the spark come alive in these girls. And in fact, um, after this last uh, ecologic, that's what it's called, in case I didn't mention that already, um, three of the girls said they wanted to come back and do science with me at the park. So now all three of them are involved in an apprenticeship program at the park. They come back every week. They do invasive species removal. They do restoration work um, with native plants. They, do, they work on science communication with education programs around the park. Um, they're writing field notes and putting them up on our website. Um, it's just been really extraordinary to see these three women, um, these three young women, almost women, <laughs> um, just come alive just to explore STEM. And, uh, so I want to see more of that. But my big goal out of all of this, out of my ambassadorship, is to make the connections to bring this summer camp, which I think is just so powerful um, and so important, to bring this summer camp to other national parks. I would like it to be National Park Service-wide. I would like it to be free uh, so that it's, it's more inclusive to the people that may not have exposure to these sorts of experiences in their life. Um, so that's something I'm actively working on right now. Um, keep your fingers crossed and wish me luck. And certainly, you know, I'll be trumpeting it from the mountaintops if I'm able to make this happen. When I grow up, I want to be just like Samantha Wins. Who could imagine that hanging out with snakes can be so much fun? Audience, I need you to think about what you can do to change the face of STEM. How can you influence a young person or a policy? There is somebody sitting right next to you that needs to be inspired. There's a policymaker that needs to be enlightened or have a frying pan smacked on his head. Whichever one that you can do, please take advantage of the moment. Please don't listen to the podcast and say, oh, wow, that was great. Listen and then go out and do an action that moves us closer to the well of love. I thank Lida Hill Philanthropies and her amazing staff for making the AAAS If Then Ambassadorship possible. And I thank the URU team for their determination to get me to Texas, for their determination to keep our work moving forward. 
I thank God for this amazing journey. There are no words to capture the whole story. And by the way, I'm running out of air. So onward and upward. Thank you for listening. Namaskar. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Intersection of Crystal R. Emery. Subscribe if you liked today's episode and want to receive notifications when new episodes are available. New episodes will be available every Monday and Thursday. If you would like to learn more about or support Crystal's work, please visit URUTheRightToBe.org. You can also follow Crystal on Twitter at Crystal R. Emery or at Changing Stem. Music is provided by Jay Hogard featuring I Am Free from his album Harlem Hieroglyphics. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Namaskar.